Welcome, and thanks for joining us. This is the Coding Compliance Podcast, the good, bad, and ugly, where we break down the complexities of billing and coding in healthcare and discuss how to operate and hopefully excel in an industry imposed with complex and ever-changing regulations. Here are your hosts, our authority on compliance, Ross Ronan, and coding experts, Neil Green and Mark Babst. Good afternoon and welcome to the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, the Coding Compliance Podcast. Mark and Neil, good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon. Well, today we have a, a special treat. We have Teresa Mason on from Epstein, Becker, and Green. She's a partner um, with the law firm. Uh, Teresa and I have worked together for, I don't know, what, the better part of 10 to 15 years, um, I think. Almost 10 years. <laughs> on, 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 on multiple things. Uh, I'd hate to say that. Uh, shows shows my age so much. But uh, uh, Teresa has been a great uh, partner in the compliance world and the legal world for us as it relates to regulatory issues. Um, and dealing with with various things related to Medicare and coding compliance. So uh, welcome, Teresa. Thank you for having me, Ross. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So a little bit about uh, kind of your your background. Where, where are you sure. from? Like, wh- what's your history? Sure. Um, so I am a healthcare fraud and abuse uh, attorney for Epstein Becker Green, as Ross said. Um, my background is actually in nursing. I was a nurse for over 14 years, similar to Ross. Um, I was... It started on pediatric oncology, went on to the emergency room, and then decided somehow to go to law school. Um, (laughs) Don't regret it one bit. I use my nursing almost on a daily basis. So um, it really is uh, a good background for what I do on a daily uh, basis. But I primarily help uh, my clients, both from a proactive and reactive side, both setting up, you know, compliant um, structure in their organizations to make sure they're in line with CMS standards. And then on the reactive side, both on, both on audits that we're going to talk about today and government investigations. That's a large part of my practice and it covers all types of providers, um, uh, health insurance plans, vendors, any, and anything related to healthcare. And we are there. So it's been fun and it's been fun working with you, Ross. I miss you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. We need to, we need to get back together. So yeah, yeah. the whole, Nursing legal thing has been has been a good transition for me too, and and um, you know I really do think that it helps understand the difference of 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 healthcare and the regulations associated with it. So, yep. so it's great to have you, uh, you know Neil and 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 Mark. Uh, I talk about you know you to them a lot, so so we're we're happy that you're able to participate in this this podcast. Yeah, it'll be fun. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about TP&Es and how to handle them. And those are our tra- targeted probe and educate from uh, uh, Centers for Medicare and, Medicare and Medicaid Services, um, essentially how to handle them and hopefully how to prevent them from happening <laughs> or avoid them from, from uh, any type of provider having a, a targeted probe and educate. Now, these can relate to, to all kinds of different providers, but um, talk a little bit about, if you would, Teresa, what is a TP&E? Um, and kind of where it came from, who it gets done by, and then we'll get into the aspects of what to do if if you ever get one as a provider. Sure. So this came out of CMS's integrity program um, unit, where in 2015 timeframe, they ran a pilot program primarily to identify instances where they can actually help the providers come under compliance because so many um, of the audits at the time were really just focused on finding fraudulent billing practices and identifying fraud abuse issues. And this was an opportunity for CMS to say, like, 
let's try and educate our providers to come under compliance instead of just penalizing them. So it was a less punitive audit that they were trying to get to. And it was successful. They were focused at that time on home health and hospice and hospital admissions. And uh, two years later, they pro, you know, gave the authority to the MAX to then look at all suppliers, all providers. So all the different jurisdictions, um, as you know, as a depending upon what type of provider you are, part A, part B, part C, part D, you have a different uh, MAC and they uh, determine, you know, what kind of areas they want to focus on, whether that's, you know, different kind of medications to hospital stays to all different stuff. And we can talk about targeting as well. So when you talk about max, just so that we kind of level set it for, yeah. for individuals who are listening and, and unfortunately in the healthcare world, along with the healthcare coding world and healthcare coding legal world, everything is an acronym of some right. sort, right? So we say TPDs right. and max and CPTs and ENMs and all those other kind of things, right? Um, kind of what is a MAC, you know, why is a MAC important versus, you know, CMS or, uh, you know, we'll talk about the other different types right. of enforcement bodies too, but what is a MAC? So the MAC's, MAC is, stands for a Medicare Administrative Contractor and they contract with CMS and, you know, their, their job, it's, it's unlike the UPICs or, you know, the RACs that, which we can talk about, but the MAC really does a lot of like beneficiary enrollment and they manage um, the different uh, providers. They are, you know, they, they take that responsibility on from CMS. So they do beneficiary enrollment um, and oversight on billing and, you know, they pay the, pay the claims and it's all claims processing. So they handle that for CMS. Um, and as part of that, they are, you know, give, they have to maintain the integrity of the Medicare trust fund, right? So they're there to protect the money that is going out the door. And in doing that, they not only have the UPICs, which is the other type of audits that we, you know, we have in the Medicare world, which um, is a step up from the ZPIC, which was uh, a few years back. The UPIC is now the new term for that. And it's now I'm going to, it's Unified Program Integrity Contractor. <laughs> easier just say UPIC. Yeah, UPIC. Um, it was previously the Zone Program Integrity Contractor. And they, they, those are actually employees of the MAC that, you know, look for fraud and abuse. The RACs, on the other hand, are contracted with CMS to ferret out fraud and abuse, and they actually get paid a percentage of um, what they find in overpayments. So unfortunately, they find a lot more overpayments than underpayments, um, and they're paid these contingency fees. So they have, you know, a real incentive to find fraud and abuse type issues. So the TPE, on the other hand, is really geared towards education. Although there are punitive, um, you know, un unfortunately there are some punitive uh, measures that can be taken against the provider, and so we have to take it as just as seriously as you would a rack or you forgot it. And so they're really trying to to make sure that people are doing it right versus you know, really combating or, or, or recovering some dollars for the federal healthcare program. Right. They, they give you a chance to correct rather than with the racks and the U picks are, you know, they just give you a dollar value you owe back to CMS. Mm -hmm. This is more of a, yes, you have a dollar value, but let's work with you to make sure that this, you know, your denials go down and uh, we can prevent this from being an issue moving forward. Great. So um, let's talk a little bit about how it's targeted, probe, and educate, right? So we'll go back to TPNE, but um, what 
how do they target? What what's important? I think this is really where where we tie in, uh, you know, the coding network because yep. the billing practices and how they've actually identified those areas that need this probe and educate are really about kind of what results are coming out of coding and billing um, from that perspective. So, what are the targeting mechanisms that that the the Macs are looking for under the TPNE process? So this is where we tell our clients all the time, and Neil, I think you would probably agree with this with your, your experience, but you got to get ahead of this, right? The, the government has finally caught up with data analytics, and they know how to find the outliers. So um, they provide to providers these comparative billing records, and they, they can see how you are as a provider lining up with other providers in your region. Um, for the services you're billing for or suppliers, same thing. I work with a lot with providers. So um, that's, I, I, I tend to say providers a lot, but this is just the same for suppliers. Um, they also look at whether or not you were previously audited. So CMS tracks that, your maps track that information as to whether you've been audited by UPIX, RACS, whether you've been under investigation by the Department of Justice, and they will target those that have been previously, it's like, you just can't win, right? You just keep getting them again and again. Uh, also services with high national error rates. So this is a lot home health, um, DME, those kind of examples. Uh, and DME, again, acronym durable medical equipment, <laughs> like oxygen and, um, you know, sleep aid machines, all that. Uh, and a lot of this, and we'll talk about the, it's just not the documentation is not there to support uh, the medical necessity for all, all these items or services. They also target target services that are high cost, right? So uh, inpatient admissions, um, ER visits, uh, hospice, home again, home health, like anything with a high dollar value um, attributable certain surgeries, right? Extensive surgeries. Um, if you are a specialist you know that you, you know, it's high cost. You need to be aware of what CMS is requiring as far as documentation, medical necessity. Teresa, would, would you say that, uh, you know, the bigger uh, the group, the more likely you could become a target? Yeah, so there's a few reasons for that, right? So um, we have seen a lot of, uh, consolidation within the medical world these days where, you know, you're seeing less and less and less of the mom and pop shops and a lot more of these big, large provider groups. And the expectation from CMS is heightened. It, the, these, these groups really do need to have a compliance function um, as Ross can attest to. <laughs> they really do need to have a, a tight compliance program and make sure that they are auditing and monitoring ahead of time not only internally, but engaging with external coders, especially when you have these, there's so many CPT codes, ICD-9 codes. There's so so much that the providers themselves do not go to med school for. Um, you know, that they're there to take care of the patients and not to make sure that they have the right CPT um, ICD-9 code, but so much is in the documentation that we really do need to be engaging with the providers to make sure they understand the medical necessity requirements that are required in the documentation. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I tend to observe in that aggregate uh, process is that um, people are then, if they are doing the compliance function in-house, they tend to force their internal people 
to continuously stretch themselves to the point where well, I, I can mention health systems where they'll have five compliance people for 3,500 providers. Mm-hmm. Now, you can't run an effective compliance program when you have a compliance team like that. That's just not possible. No, and you need the specialty. Like, a, a, like a, I've worked with other, your group, I've worked with other groups where they really have this array of coders that know all the different specialty codes because there's just too much for one person to know everything, right? You really yeah. do have a special dermatology. There's a, you know, a dermatology group. There's a cardiology group. There are coders that know those codes within those specialties very, very well. And you kind of need that. We've, we've also run into, um, uh, programs where they're still growing and they only maybe have one or two coders in house and they don't know enough. And so we've engaged with coding groups like yourself to then come and educate, right? So there's been some audits, they're not doing well, but then, you know, the, the provider argues back and there just needs to be almost like a tiebreaker. And so we've brought in coding, um, experts to, um, engage with the client and make sure that, and then run with it from there, but to make sure that they're kind of having that third party outside external, um, education happening to make sure, because they are the specialists really. Right. And I think I've mentioned this on another podcast that, uh, a lot of groups are not familiar with the Department of Justice's uh, uh, April 19 guidance on code and compliance plans. And as a result of that, um, you still have programs that are out there where they'll have a two-year, three-year window to go through their providers as service groups, which, of course, that guidance change to annually. <laughs> so um, it automatically makes their plan, uh, unfortunately, invalid. You also ha- have uh, uh, situations that I observe all the time where the remediation process that you're talking about, and uh, that sort of tiebreaker concept, or once you give the client the information, and they're supposed to then complete the remediation process through a re-review process, um, that that step is completely forgotten until the next audit cycle, which also is a violation of the Department of Justice's guidelines. So uh, I, I, I find myself constantly talking about these issues with clients, and yet um, somehow the message uh, a lot of times is ignored um, and a lot of times uh, the level of ignorance about it is um, just such that they don't believe it's true until <laughs> I send it to them. Or until an audit hits. Or until an audit hits. Exactly correct. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the TPE process, right? So we, we've went through what it is, um, you know, who does it, you know, who's actually doing these targeted probe and educates, what they're looking for, right? Um, let's talk a little bit about kind of what is the process and how many times do you get to do this and how many times do you get looked at and, and, you know, you know, we'll talk a little bit about how we can prevent that from happening by doing some upfront uh, data analysis, but what's the process? Like, you know, I know letters come in the mail. I see them all the time from, from, 
from um, the MACs and, and um, you know, requests for information, requests for documents. But let's kind of talk through the formality of the, the notice steps and, and what happens. So I mean, providers are hit with so many communications from Max, as you said, Ross, and not only from Max, but I mean, they're from insurance, they're, they're payers, um, there's audits all over the place. And sometimes this kind of falls in their lap and no, nobody pays attention to it, right? It's just another documentation request. But this is important to pay attention to because uh, you have three rounds to get it right. And if you don't, there are some punitive damages that we can talk about. Um, but you, the first outreach will be what's called a notice of review. And this will just actually state the reason why you've been identified as an outlier. And it's it's typically very generic, broad language. You know, there's some aberrant billing practices identified. Um, there is a difference between whether or not this is prepayment review or a postpayment review. If it's prepayment, it'll just be a notice that you are on notice that you will be that certain claims will be reviewed in the future. And then you will get what's called an ADR or an additional document request coming down the line for certain claims and background. They will request medical records for that at a later date and time. For a post-payment review, they are going to identify in that notice of review um, the additional documentation they need, which is basically medical records for anywhere between 20 to 40 claims that they have already paid on. Um, and so, with that, they will, uh, you know, request, I think it's typically within 30 days, I want to say you've got to respond with the medical record documentation. And this is where it's most important to get everybody engaged from the provider to compliance to a coding specialist, legal, so that everyone is geared up for that response, that initial response, because you want to put your best foot forward that, that first at the first stage. And we can talk about how to how to pass through this, but I'll keep going through the stages, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Okay. So um, if you if you show compliance and compliance in the regs is 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 defined as full compliance, but as we all know, uh, or as we've seen, not all the MACs require 100% compliance. A lot of this will, you, you can skirt by it like an 85%, 90%. You, typically it's over 90, but we've seen as low as 85. Um, and and that's, that's good, but you, we'd be surprised. I mean, we've had some come back at 50% compliance, right? Even less than that first go around. And we know it, right? We know when we're, we're sending this stuff out the door because we've looked at it, that it does not look pretty. So if, if you are in compliance, you are released from the TP process and you will get a letter saying as much. Keep that record, make sure it's somewhere. Um, that means that they cannot, the, the MAC cannot come back and audit you for that same issue within that full, the next full year. You've got a 12-month reprieve unless, and of course, probably written by a lawyer, unless CMS <laughs> changes its rules or regulations regarding that specific service or um, you know, uh, item. Round two, um, well, and so if you are not in compliance, you are then offered what's called an a one-on-one -on -one education. Um, you don't have to take them up on it. I, I definitely would never recommend not taking them up on it. <laughs> it, is, it is conducted by not the auditor. So the, there's an auditor that actually conducts the audit, and then there's the provider outreach actually does the education. Typically lasts an hour, sometimes not enough time. Um, but it's at that time where you really will discuss the errors. They'll walk through the errors that they identified um, and they'll walk through the, you know, the guidance that CMS really um, wants you adhering by. 
it's, it's the best time to, the reason why I say get everybody engaged, because it is the best time to, to really make sure you're understanding how they want these services documented. And so it's good to have the coding people on. So they, they understand from a coding perspective, what that's what expected. It's good to have the provider on for the first round of education, because this won't be the last round of education you will have with him or her, but it will be an education for the provider to understand the severity of this really. Um, and then from a co compliance, it's always good to have compliance and legal on as well. I, we recommend that, but um, so that one-on-one -on -one education happens and you are given another 45 days to then bring your documentation in under compliance, right? And then they will ask for another 20 to 40 records. This is round two. Um, same thing. If you are in the compliance, they will let you go and be, you will be released from the TPE. If it, if it has to go to the third round and you're not brought in under compliance, um, then you'll be offered another educational session. It's at that time that it is absolutely imperative that you understand what you're, what, what you're failing at because you do not want to fail round three. Um, but you know, round three comes, they're going to, they're going to give you another 45 days, another 20, 40 claims will be requested. Uh, and then you're, it, then it just all depends upon the outcomes from there. I'll stop for questions. For <laughs> lots of rounds, lots of yeah. steps, right? You know, yep. and, and this typically can go over and over long periods of time. So, so one of the things that I think you brought up, and uh, I think it's really helpful for the uh, our listeners, is that, you know, oftentimes um, people that are listening to our, our um, podcasts are people that are compliance people themselves, coders, et cetera. Uh, trying to understand the processes more and more in depth. And um, uh, I think they all have this tendency to struggle against upper management, especially the bigger the organization gets and things get siloed. Um, a lot of the decisions are top-down decisions uh, coming from people who are totally unfamiliar with coding, compliance, and the ramifications of not doing the things that you're talking about. So I try to encourage those people to try to start speaking the language of the people that are making the decisions. The people that look at a compliance department as not having any value. A provider has value. A service line has value. Compliance department, it's hard for a CFO to understand that. Very, very hard. What sort of guidance could you give our listeners to help them? Because the things you've described are extraordinarily expensive once they start. Right. Uh, you know, I think you just have to look at the potential ramifications of, you know, the TPE if you do not come in under compliance. And I think some of that may resonate with like finance, right? So there is, an, there is a potential for, uh, extrapolation of the error rate to a six-year look-back period, which can be significant, especially with some of these high-cost items and services, right? So um, that that can be millions of dollars. Uh, they're, they're, they can suspend payment, which in some, you know maybe not in a large, large provider group, but in a medium-sized, a small provider group um, arena, that can that can destroy a business. It, the payment suspension can be 180 days, and then they can actually um, uh, renew that for another 180 days, where you are not getting paid for any claims to Medicare. Um, 
another, they, they also can do 100% of prepayment review, which again, stalls that payment process. So from a CFO perspective, you know, making sure that they understand the potential financial ramifications of the outcome of this audit may, you know, may, may pull some more attention over to that coding compliance side of things. Um, there, you know, there's, you can also end up being excluded. I mean, this, we haven't seen a lot of that at all. I mean, it doesn't usually get um, escalated to that, but you can be excluded, which for those who don't know, excluded means you can no longer participate in the Medicare program. So, um, and then there's potential of negotiating a CIA. It's, it's all a mess as Ross and I know, <laughs> CIA negotiations can be a pain. Um, but, you know, e- the even bigger issue is, or, you know, the more serious, th- these, can, these can get referred to other enforcement entities, right? So it, they can get referred to Iraqs, they can get referred to the UPICs, it can get referred to the OIG and the DOJ, which is where you do not want to go and you do not want to be because then this becomes an investigation and the money that providers pay for the, the, the costs associated with an investigation are exorbitant. So we want to, we want to stop this at this stage, the first stage, second stage, don't get to the third stage and don't fail the third stage. Right. And I've, I've had some, some conversations with some Macs who have said, I have no choice but to refer it to the DOJ and the OIG. I have a requirement and an obligation to do right. so. And that really puts you in a bind. And, and going back to a couple of the other things that you had said, um, you know, one of the biggest ways to really upset your CFO is increase your DSO, your days, your, your day's sales outstanding, right? And a number one way of doing that is getting on a prepayment review, because that means that you're not just submitting your claim form to Medicare to get paid, you're submitting every piece of document to support that, or you're not getting paid, which means that someone has to review it, someone has to pull the chart, someone has to you know, you know, let it let it go through the process at the MAC before any dollars are actually coming through, and that really can be a problem. And a lot of, a lot of the problem with these TPNEs is they look pretty benign when they come in, right? Mm-hmm. It looks like, hey, everybody, we noticed that you're outside the the realm here and wanted to make sure that we're going to do this probe and educate, right? And we're so here to people- help you. Yeah, we're here to help. You know, we're the government. We're here to help. Um, and, and you know, generally that means that people go, oh, this is great. And they, they put it off to the side, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've seen from a compliance perspective is when your revenue cycle or your coding process or your companies are, are dealing with these on a routine basis, which, by the way, I will have to say on step one, that is the most common failure of a TPNE is the step one where people either A, disregard the letter, B, do not note to timely respond with the records, um, or C, the MAX, Medicare National, as well as the MAX, tend to not send correspondence to the same place very often. They just pick one that's on their correspondence and they send it. So you check all of your mailboxes, check all of your lock boxes, check wherever you're providing services because they tend to get lost in the mail and you could lose your pellet. Or process. where you're billing through, um, Ross. Exactly. So it sometimes goes to the, the vendor that you've hired to bill your claims to Medicare and it goes there instead of to you. And so there is numerous times that first step is missed and you've already missed an opportunity to rectify the situation from the beginning. 
or if you're a hospital-based provider, they'll send it to the hospital and the hospital yeah. doesn't really care about that piece of it. Um, the other thing I was going to say on the risks of failure is um, I have seen this recently, Teresa, and I don't know if you've seen this as well, but it's a suspension and revocation of a provider number. I've seen Medicare enrollment getting much more involved in these TPNEs where they will go through the first, second, third rounds and, and constant failures of, of not having improved their process. And they either then suspend the medical provider, the provider number, um, Medicare provider number, or they just terminate it in general. Have you seen that? Yeah, we have, too? and you know what a process that is to get that reinstated. It it's is almost impossible. Yep. It really is. So yes, these are all, does it get here all the time? No. Can we try and rectify this from the beginning? Yes. But like, this is what people need to understand is the potential outcomes of these type of audits. It's not as friendly as, you know, the educational piece of this is, is you know, broadcast to be. And when providers, just so everybody knows, when, when providers lose their provider number for Medicare, whether it's revocation or you don't pay, whatever it may be, right? You have to actually tell every time you enroll, <laughs> everything right. down the future, it, it, it stays with you, right? It's mm -hmm. like a, it's like a, a scarlet letter criminal. Yeah, it's like a criminal activity that just follows you forever. So, so these are very important to make sure that um, that you go through the process. And Neil, I apologize, I interrupted you. No, no. All I was going to add to the conversation is, uh, of course, all this information. Once there's a final determination in the negative, um, becomes public information, and and once that happens, what we've seen throughout um, most more recent years is organizations. Let's say Blue Cross is not the Blue Cross Blue Shield is not the fiscal intermediary for Medicare in that particular region we see them looking at these tables to see whether or not they want to do their own probes. Right. And so it's not, I know a lot of people think when we have these conversations about a particular carrier type that everything else is okay. Don't worry about it. That is not the case any longer. You can have Aetna, Medicare, Blue Cross, all these organizations that account for the overwhelming majority of your claims come knocking because of one event. Mm -hmm. that, that's absolutely right. It triggers, it triggers more activity for sure. So all we need is more activity in the healthcare realm versus <laughs> just trying to take care of patients, right? Uh, <laughs> especially <laughs> so now. Yeah, especially now with all the other stuff that's going on. So we get through the process, we get through the steps and hopefully, you know, you, you get to a, a resolution where it doesn't end up in some sort of um, future adverse reaction, but let's say you do, right? Um, when you get through and you really want to appeal whatever finding may be out there, whether it's a... Uh, prepayment review, whether it's an extrapolation and overpayment, or, you know, even some sort of exclusion, which you and I talked about that a little bit, that that's a whole nother kind of category you have to deal with. Talk a little bit about the appellate process. It's the same appellate process that you have with the OIG and the DOJ yeah. and the ZPIX and the RACs and the MACs and all yeah. the other things. It's all the same. Can you kind of walk through that? Reconsideration, ALJ, it's all that, right? But we encourage starting this process from the beginning. And we, we've gotten out of a lot of, um, of been released 
even before the second round is done because of what we did with the first round, right? So first round comes in, you are not, not found to be compliant, um, but you disagree or you disagree with the findings, A, or B, there's been more documentation that you've identified since you initially sent in the medical record. So we, for that latter piece, we have, we see all the time, and this is becoming more and more of an issue, unfortunately, I've seen this more so than not, is the EMR, so many people are using EMRs right now, instead of paper, back in the day when Ross and I were practicing, it was paper, everything was paper. Now it's all these EMRs, and, the doctors are still having issues with them. I mean, it's a lot of them are not intuitive. Uh, and oftentimes what we're seeing is what's printed out is not actually what is in the computer. So we've had issues where, you know, documented that a fall risk for an annual wellness visit, there are a number of documentation requirements more. So there's like 10, 15, it's a lot. And all of this needs to be captured in the medical record. And Some EMRs are very good with how it's set up for these annual wellness visits. Um, Others are not. And we, we, there was, there is an instance where there was um, where a doctor would document the fall risk. He actually did in the computer itself, but when that printed out to a paper record or PDF, where you're going to send it on to um, the TPE auditor, it did not capture that. So it's like it failed to capture some of the, where if you looked in the medical, if you looked in the EMR, it captured it. So finding those things out, looking, looking through these medical records at the beginning, seeing, not looking, not looking at the access that you have, printing them out and looking at it the way the auditor would look at and, and address and defending, writing up a defense for each claim proactively, whether that's while the, um, before you even send the medical records, if you can do that within that time frame or while they're actually looking at it as well, being very aggressive, getting coding involved, getting the clinical people involved, getting the EMR people involved, um, making sure that you have all that ready. You can, um, you can, you can um, really do a great job of engaging and making sure that appeals process is initiated right away. Uh, and, and cause you can submit that with, you have 45 days um, to actually, or maybe it's 120 now I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but, um, you have a certain amount of time within which to, um, challenge their findings, but that could be overturned before the second round is done. And so you could potentially be released before the second round is completed. That That's really sense. whatever it says in the letter, right? It, it, right. It, it's like a step-by-step process to, to appeal these things, right? And, you know, I, as a compliance officer, I hate going into these TPNEs or any other type of review blind. And, you know, using a, a auditing company like, you know, the coding network and the experts in the industry that will not only get my client and, and us through the TPE process in and of itself helps support the actual appellate process as it goes through the reconsideration redetermination. Right. right. And, I, and I think that that is that um, partnership is so important to be able to pass and, and not have this audit become a prepayment review or become something that just gets exacerbated beyond belief and you can't, right 
he gets out of control. It has, it has a mind of its own. So. Right. You're absolutely right, Ross. And you know, a lot of compliance officers do not have that clinical background that you do. Right. And so you need both the provider involved, the coding people involved, compliance, just from a compliance standpoint, I mean, you know, clinical, so you can actually look at these records as well, but you really do need that whole gamut of people involved in, in absolutely being prepared before they come back with the results. Yeah, maybe you could, uh, <clears throat> you know, elucidate uh, for the audience the <clears throat> issues of being able to um, utilize um, uh, a organization and the importance of us- utilizing an external organization, either in conjunction with or in place of having your own internal team. Um, and the sort of benefits that that brings to the table, because I think one of the things that I see a lot is that you have the people internally that are doing coding training, then becoming the coding auditing team. And so they're basically auditing what they know, not what they don't know. Yeah. So Neil, it's a good question. I, I always am a proponent of an independent third party um, both from for the perception from the government, where it's not just internally advocating, it's someone else that's saying, no, this is what, you know, this is, this is what you need to be doing, right? I also think that oftentimes, I think we hit on this before, that in the internal coders, you often don't have all the expertise for all the different specialties. And for some of these really large organizations, you need to rely on external expertise to fully understand that um, specialty. And, you know, not only engaging with these external vendors um, at the beginning, it also helps the external vendors be able to potentially educate your internal, both internal providers and the internal coders later on, right? Once this is all done, there absolutely is an education piece that the coder, the coding, vendors can be an integral part of both at the coding and the provider side level of things. Great. Thank you. It can prevent you from getting to round two, right? I mean, when they redo it, they say, okay, they've mitigated the efforts and, and therefore, you know, the mitigation efforts should apply all the way through the process. And if you do that, you never get to the strike three and you're out. Right. Right. And And I think that's really the most important part. So we talked a little bit about, um, what a TPNE is, how, what happens if you get one, right? And how you get through one, um, you know, for those, those people in the world who, you know, three, three levels of, of compliance program, uh, detection, mitigation, and prevention, right? We all have to focus on the prevention side of it. How do we stop these from happening? How do we prevent these TPNEs from coming down the road, whether it's, um, you know, staying out of the, the targeted areas where they're looking at or using the right expertise. What's our advice here to, to be able to, to be proactive and not have these teams? Because they can be time, they can be timely and expensive. They t- take yeah. up a lot of people's time and work and outside auditors and vendors and all the things we talked about of the mitigation or the, the ramifications of them. How do we actually prevent them from happening? Right. So I think, you know, it's, it's so we, you and I both have prov- a lot of provider friends, right, Ross, where they, they went to school to take care of patients. They, they understand they need to document, but 
you know, do they know all the rules? And they often don't. So you, you need someone in the organization or externally that does know the rules, right? And that knows what is required in the codes that are often being billed most often. Um, and they're they're available. Um, the the MACs have the LCD, you, know, you have the LCDs, you have the NCDs. You, there are the requirements. There, there's often tools. Um, a lot of the MACs will actually publish what the auditor, like there's a checkbox and there's literally like, does the, you know, is there a uh, signature by the position? Is there a certification? Is there, you know, what elements of the annual wellness visit are this, this, this. So you can actually, as an organization, we recommend getting familiar with um, the requirements that CMS uh, has for on the documentation and making sure that you're educating your providers on a regular basis, making sure there is um, auditing and monitoring going on. And whether that is, you know, internal, external, again, I recommend, you know, absolutely engaging externally, having that extra layer. Um, even if, you know, if it's once a year and you're doing more regular monitoring on a, you know, a regular basis, um, but keeping up with that. And, and a lot of the coding people will actually be on the, um, in the know of any coding changes that happen. So there's so much that happens on an annual basis that gets changed and we're not always aware of it as providers. So um, keeping up with that. And then, um, you know, making sure again, that we're educating our doctors, educating our providers, educating our coding people, letting them um, be aware and, and keeping up with the, the trends in the, um, in, in the area of specialty that you are in as to as far as changes, as far as um, enforcement actions, as far as the focus of the government, the OIG work plan is a great source. It's, it's a viable, but it is a great source of where the OIG, where enforcement's headed. And, um, you know, that the, the uh, MACs look to that as, you know, their, their source of where we should head as well. Yeah, like the the work plans are are definitely something that every compliance person should be reviewing on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. One thing I'd add here, or at least want to talk about, is a little data mining, right? So, at some point in time, we're getting to the point um, that we have big data, right? So, hospitals and healthcare have a lot of information as it relates to the codes and the bills that you're submitting. And, and you can tell pretty quickly if you're an outlier on a certain thing um, based upon your peers. And I think that that's one of the targeted uh, areas that they look like, that they look at, right? They look, are you in line with your peers? Are you above your peers? Things like that. And, um, you know, Neil and Mark, I mean, when you guys do what you do, are you able to 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 produce produce some some uh, you know data saying this is where every this is where you fall out in your um, in your let's say your acuity distribution depending on what kind of specialty you are I mean is that some information that that you all would be able to to provide any clients to maybe help with something like this Yeah so so both Medicare and the Medical Group Management <coughs> Association published tables. And uh, MGMA borrows a lot of that data from Medicare. Um, the problem with bulk data is the following. Um, <clears throat> and it is true, rack auditors use it a lot. Um, but the problem with, with bulk data is that <clears throat> uh, the bulk numbers can cover up a lot of grievances. And, and so you can have 
something that looks like a normal table. And if you're not doing regular audit work on your providers, you can end up with something that looks like a normal table and literally have a third undercoated, a third overcoated, and a third perfectly done. And it looks like a normal table. To, and, and, and so you're looking at your peers' tables and you're going, hmm. And additionally, about 18 months ago, uh, Medicare uh, and CMS came out with a statement saying, we believe that 43% of all E&M services sent to us are the wrong level of service. Now, that's in those data tables that they then turn around and replicate for everybody else. So uh, once you understand that, you understand the importance of regular audits. And whether you, as Therese uh, pointed out, it doesn't really matter whether you're combining an internal program with an external program, but it is important to uh, be doing those audits on a regular basis, looking at all your service lines, uh, the DOJ compliance uh, guidance that they issued in April of 19 talks about that, not just assuming that you're running data tables that look the same, but that you're actually doing the audit work and that you're also um, mitigating the things that you find and that you are remediating. And obviously, uh, if you do find something, one of the things they're looking for is to see, did you actually correct it? And so if you don't do the hard work, which is the reason that there are compliance departments, it, if you don't do them, you don't resource them properly, which often happens, you end up in these situations where you're really potentially going to spend a lot of money as uh, Teresa talked about attorney's fees, there's accounting fees, there's expert witness fees, and you really get into it. Neil, I think that that's absolutely right. I think um, the data, the data is a good place to start, but the auditing work needs to be done. And I always agree with that. That's yeah. So, that's um, uh, it's interesting. It's my understanding that no doctor or medical group or, or, or laboratory is sent uh, is fined or penalized on the basis of gross data. They only use it. You have to drill down to what happens in the exam room or in the operating room to, uh, and that's where the rubber meets the road when it comes to accuracy of coding and, uh, and where the risk is and the documentation of each individual service. So, so we, that's what we pay attention to. Mm. It's everything. It really is, and and you know when we when we set up compliance programs and run compliance programs in our auditing and monitoring uh, process, one thing that we do is we try to mirror all of the OIG, DOJ, RACS, BACS, ZPICs, UPICs, whatever you want to call them. We try to mirror what they do and how they get there. And when you when you use data mining in conjunction with your auditing program, I think it really creates that ironclad, mm -hmm. solid review process. You, you have to have the monitoring and auditing 100%. You have to know what's underneath all of that. But if you can mirror and you can replicate. Sometimes it'll be helpful in the proactivity of it to make sure that you're not you're not on the radar because you've actually looked. And, and if you are on the radar, that's fine. You just if you have an acuity distribution that's different than norm, then you just have to be able to say why and you're ready for it, right? So that right. 
those are the most important things in, in my mind for your all in good compliance auditing and monitoring program. <clears throat> so last, let's wrap it up with some uh, where we're at today in the last year, almost a year, well, probably a year, pretty close to, to now, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. uh, the days of COVID and uh, the impact of COVID as it relates to government enforcement actions specifically related to targeted probe and educates. What are you seeing? What's going on here? Yeah, so in March of last year, kind of when the world shut down, um, CMS put a halt, a suspension on all audits and really wanted providers focused on patient care, which is understandable, completely and thankful. <laughs> um, in July, very quietly, um, in response to some frequently asked questions, FAQs, um, they decided to restart these audits as of August. And they weren't going to go full force. Um, it was more, you know, a toe in the water type, but let's just get these started back. And, you know, clients of ours got like stop notices in March where even if they were involved in the TPE that this was, you know, it was completely suspended and they were not going to go back to it, um, you know, maybe at a future time. Um, we haven't seen a ton of activity, but there is activity. Um, it, it's not, and, but CMS is permitting, the MACs are allowed um, to have an extension of response time. So you do not need to get these medical records in as quickly as long as you can explain um, and show that there's some burden to um, the, uh, you know, the provider in getting that to them. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, go ahead. I, I was just going to say that uh, I think there's a, a big difference between Again, there's a lot of this top-down decision-making that mm -hmm. takes place. And that while, as you point out, CMS has backed off and given somebody, uh, given the group space to operate, um, I, I don't think that providers should uh, assume that this is an indefinite hold. And as long as COVID is going on, uh, they have a free pass because I've already started to see audit work done, not just by uh, CMS, but by third parties yep. that are now, you know, re-engaging the Blue Shields, the Etnos, et cetera, that are starting back in the little probe audits, et cetera. And, um, and I think that there is some of that confusion that's now gone on because people at the top haven't paid a lot of attention other than what's happened to their bottom line. Right. And, you know, yeah. Absolutely. You know, we are seeing payer audits, a bunch of payer audits. That is what we're seeing more of. And it, it's interesting, though, because um, the time that we had off for those six months from March to August, September timeframe, um, the ALJ actually cleared out all the backlog of all of the uh, appeals that were sitting in their bucket. So it's interesting that they, they, we may see an uptick in not only TPEs, but racks, I could see, because they were keeping them to a certain amount because they had such a backlog and because they didn't stop working, um, they got rid of all that. So it'll be really interesting to see the, you know, the impact of maybe an increase in audits actually coming. I mean, we're still in this pandemic world, so I, I, maybe there is some still deference to these providers, but I, I, I don't think it's going to last forever. Um, and uh you know, it's right now they're focused on pre-March 2020 claims, but it looks like there may be some increased, I mean, we all know that in 20, there's definitely been some waivers and there's been a lot of loosening of 
certain requirements with um, certain services. So it'll be interesting to see the impact of that and how they're going to audit those claims post-March 2020. Right. So I, I, to speak specifically to that issue, uh, telemedicine has yeah. you know, exploded as a result of uh, the COVID uh, injection into the uh, world of medicine. And so you saw all these health systems uh, step up the technology with very little training for the documentation. Mm-hmm. and very little auditing of that documentation. Uh, I can say that, you know, unfortunately, as we've gotten into clients, uh, the auditing leaves them very vulnerable right now. And so we're trying to help a lot of clients change that process, posture right now. And especially because uh, CMS has indicated that by the second half of this year, they're going to be looking at yep. that in particular. And they're also, I, I'm fairly confident, going to be, giving the providers a, a, a six month window to be able to get the new quote simpler uh, outpatient E&M <laughs> uh, coding protocols down, uh, which I think a lot of folks are going to find out weren't all that simple as they thought. Agreed. And how it might expand to the rest of the CPT world as opposed to the limited scope that they have. So I I think we're in a a very interesting time um, status post pandemic and COVID of, of what the government's going to look at, not only from a, uh, targeted proven educate, but all kinds of other reviews that are going to happen and audits that are that are going to be uh, looked at throughout uh, the next year or so, right? So either they're going to go back before the pandemic, or they're going to look at that time frame that happened during the emergency orders and where all the waivers were, were put into place. So I think we have some interesting times uh, coming up here, and and thankfully to to everybody who's on the phone, um, there's a a breadth and width of experience and knowledge here that we can help people, um, you know, charter these waters and, and make sure that they come out on the right end of this. So, uh, you know, just to kind of wrap up and, and, and put everything into perspective of what we talked about today, you know, how do we, how do we deal with uh, a targeted probe and educate? And um, what do you do when you have one? We talked a little bit about the process that you'll see uh, stepping through them and how to, how to come at, how to bring it to resolution. What happens if you don't? Um, abide by a TPE and their their the ramifications that can happen from that, and then really how to avoid them, um, and using the right expertise and the right. Um, people doing the right thing and having the right um, groups help help uh, make sure that your coding and your billing is accurate as it can possibly be and you're monitoring, auditing, and um, mitigating and preventing things from happening. So essentially a wrap up and Teresa, really appreciate you joining us today. We enjoyed the conversation and uh, I think there was a lot of great information in here and hope hopefully everybody got a good educational session out of this. I know I did, um, but I really appreciate it. Thanks you so know, much. I, thank, thank you to you very much, Teresa. Yeah. It's uh, delightful uh, having this conversation. Thanks so much, y'all. It was great to be with you. Great. Bye. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Coding Compliance Podcast. The good, bad, and ugly. Sponsored by Ronan Healthcare Consultants and The Coding Network. With our hosts, Ross Ronan, Neil Green, and Mark Babs. Please tune in to iTunes and Spotify on the first Friday of each month for a new episode. 
If you like our show and want to know more, check out our podcast website or leave us a review. 